Drax is the largest provider of renewable electricity in the UK and plays a critical role in ensuring a secure energy system. The company has plans to invest billions in new infrastructure, such as bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, which will create thousands of jobs, whilst also delivering the energy needed by homes and businesses up and down the UK. Discover more at Drax.com. Hello and welcome to a special episode of Coffee House Shots, live from Tory Party Conference. I'm Katie Balls, I'm joined by Fraser Nelson, Kate Andrews and Frank Lutz. And can we make some noise, people know we're not an empty room? Now, Frank, you were on a panel just like this um, uh, two years ago for Coffee House uh, Shots, whereby you, you predicted or you said who you thought the most likely Tory leader was going to be, Liz Truss. It came true. I'm but sorry. Then... <laughs> <laughs> well, if you listen to some of the activists today who went to the packed growth rally, it seems she definitely still has an, an audience, at least in parts of the Tory party conference. Um, are you surprised by that, Frank? I'm surprised that she would do it now. And the first thing I want to know, by a show of hands, I'm, we're going to do some voice stuff, but I want to do a show of hands so you have the ability to redo it afterward and pretend that the numbers aren't so great. How many of you, by show of hands, think that the Rishi government is going to get reelected a year from now? Raise your hands. One, two, four, six, eight, 10, 12, 14, 16, 18, 20, 22, 24, maybe 20, 30 people. So like 20%? And by the way, everyone who just raised their hands is drinking a gin and tonic. I just want to make How many of you think that labor is going to form the next government? Raise your hands. Okay. So what do we, what do, we do with that? More than half the room. More than, well, more than I'd half the room. I'd say, what, 70-30? Yeah. yeah. I think that might be kind. Okay, let's say 80-20, but yeah. Okay, so, okay hello. 75-25. I know. Are we allowed to go out to them? Yeah. Or do you want to wait? No, no, cool. Good. Okay, so I need five of you who believe the conservatives are going to win to speak up. And I don't know if their microphone's going to go around. And they're just, okay, microphone there. Do you have a microphone over here? Five of you, raise your hands. I want five of you to tell me why. And the number's gone down. <laughs> and there's a mic right, right behind you. She'll go first. And right here, he'll go second. I'm simply going to the people nearest the microphones. Why is the Conservatives going to get re-elected? They'll get re-elected because a woman doesn't have a penis. I did not expect to hear the P word. <laughs> you should have heard our last panel, actually, Frank. It was a lot worse than that. Do you want a gin? No, it's like, I don't know what to say to you. I just know, usually when someone uses the P word, just let it go. Um, why are the Conservatives going to win? Um, in one sentence, it's, it's difficult, but I see the upcoming election as a 1992 election rather than the 1997 landslide for Labour. So, so does anyone speak English here? Uh, 1992. <laughs> um, North Frank, this is, you know. Yes, where are you from? Uh, Lancashire. Okay, I was actually there, and I've never seen such angry Tories as in your area. Mm. And I'm not going to out the MP, but I went to a session and every single person who spoke had a complaint about this government. And they're not voting Labour, and they're not voting Lib Dem, but they're not voting Conservative. And I think that we're gonna have 
you're going to be challenged with turnout. I think that's the very first thing that you have to be thinking about is not there, no one is going to vote for Keir Starmer, who didn't vote Labor the last time. But they are so mad at the conditions right now that they may not vote at all, and that will put Labor into government. Someone from this side, I'm going to make it easy. That gentleman that's right, if you, you're going to choose. Um, Stand up. I, I am. <laughs> Cheers. Okay, I, I, do the, I do the jokes here. Um, because there's no appetite for Sir Flip-Flop. He doesn't have an opinion. He doesn't stand for anything. And the polls are inflated because they don't include the don't knows. And those don't knows will make up the next election. And we can still win them back. That's the most important thing. So what usually happens in America is that the undecideds tend to break two to one or three to one for the challenger. So you're telling me that that's different here in the UK? Look, what I'm saying is look at the choice. You've either got a prime minister who's trying to set out change and set out a new direction versus someone who's broken every single pledge that he stood to become leader. He's nationalizing, no oh no wait, he's nationalizing nothing. He doesn't know whether it's Monday or whether it's Friday. He, he is the worst opposition leader that we've had, at least with Corbyn. People knew what he stood for and then could decide yes or no. Sir Flipflop doesn't know what he's doing. So from my point of view, we need to stop talking the Conservatives down because there is a huge chance that we will win the next election because no one likes the alternative. Clearly, you've rehearsed that. <laughs> one more from over here, whoever you want to give it to. Hi, uh, Zoe Kluwer from uh, Wiltshire Council and other places. I really think Rishi Sunak's beginning to talk to the regular person in the street now and getting the message much more aligned with what the British public want. It's going to take him some time to tackle things like the small boats because we have other players um, in the mix there. But as far as net zero goes, it's got to be affordable. It's, it's got to be in the right time frame. And I think people are really coming on board with the message. And as for the opposition, um, they've spent a couple of weeks with a spade and doing a bit of digging. Thank you. So before I'm going to, you guys, before we go to the other side, those who think conservatives are going to lose, any reactions? I thought I was hosting. And I, I know. Hosting. I just, yeah. I'm a moderator. I just, I, I'm like America. I go somewhere and I take over. <laughs> and, I mean. And I know that you regret it in the end, but we leave you a lot of money. So everyone on the way out, I'll give you all a tenner. Yeah, I mean, I think probably the votes so far uh, reflect the mood in the conference. Maybe it's a little bit harsher in a sense. I think that we're nowhere where we were last year, if you think about that conference. Most of you are probably there. That felt almost like a conference on fire from about two hours in. Um, and it was just very chaotic and jumpy. And I suppose a bit mutinous, um, but I think it was just a kind of a constant sense of panic as policies changed under Liz Truss. Um, you know, the fact that things fell apart so quickly. And therefore, this conference is a strange one in a sense. It feels a little bit muted, but I think that if you, you know, speaking to figures here, it's quite calm. I think the question is are basically lots of the calm people resigned to defeat, which I think 
the hands in the room probably point to slightly rather than thinking, what can we do about it before? Um, but we're really far from the point the party was in last year, which was mutinous, febrile, the word everyone in Westminster likes to use. Um, so I feel we've moved on in that sense. But I think what Rishi Sunak does need to do to have any really chance of turning around is, you know, by Wednesday have made all the people who put their hands you know, up for Labour definitely going to win. At least think a little bit twice about how high they put their hand up. I've been sensing, optimism would be the wrong word, but I think the timing of Rishi Sunak's net zero announcements have really played into conference because you can sense both from MPs, I think, but also from attendees, um, that there is scope for the prime minister to come out and do some pretty bold things. And I think up until about 10 days ago, that was not broadly thought to be the case. Um, And I think... Rishi Sunak's put himself in a good position for conference, but also a slightly tricky one because he has almost accidentally created a very loose playbook about how one might go about adapting more, let's call them conservative principles, or making changes that are a bit more bold. And, you know, what I'm hearing a lot about is is tax cuts. Nobody wants to talk about them on stage in public because the line from the government right now is, we are not getting tax cuts this year. I mean, maybe they'll surprise us, but Jeremy Hunt was doubling down on that today, and I think he's speaking just about now, and I says, you know, maybe there's a rabbit in the hat, but let's assume that when he's saying this morning that he's doubling down on that, he means it. Um, And I think people have looked at those net zero announcements and thought to themselves, well, can't we do something like that on tax? Can't we do something like that in these other areas where we have just um, not only been, frankly, untory, but we've made the situation so much worse? The tax burden is on track to be at its um, uh, record high or post-war high by the end of the next parliament. It's been going up under Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt since Boris Johnson. So, you know, the trajectory is just getting worse. Um, and for a government that is, keeps saying it's willing to have those tough discussions, it really doesn't want to talk about the changes that would have to be made to meaningfully bring down the tax burden. So, so many of those tensions are still there, but I just think those net zero comments have ever so slightly shifted how people are feeling this week um, because they see, you know, it, it is possible for the Prime Minister to come out and be bold in that way, and now they want to see it on other topics quite quickly. I think what the gentleman said there about Keir Starmer it reflects a lot of what I hear when I talk to Conservatives as well. A belief that the, the, the best chance Tories have got is the fact that you've got an opposition leader is pretty bad, you've got a, foreign, a shadow foreign secretary who attested on Mastermind that Henry VIII was succeeded by Henry VII. Um, you know, which you did, by the way, you can see it on YouTube. But the, the, the overall thing is, like, basically, the, the, I think the Tories over the years have become quite used to saying, vote for us because we're not the other guys. Now, that has worked. Vote for us because we're not Corbyn. That was powerful. But vote for us because we're not Keir Starmer. I wonder if it's got as much potency as the gentleman over there thinks. Because I don't think people might have a low opinion of Harmer, Starmer, but he doesn't horrify them in the way that Corbyn did twice. And I think the Conservatives have got a little bit lazy on this and they've lost the art of making a positive case for conservatism. Say, vote for us because the other guy's bad. Tories have been doing that for a long, long, long time. But vote for us, here's the positive reason the party struggles to articulate that. And I think that's going to be the problem. But I do think sort of faith in St. Keir, as it were. He's a, he's a patron saint of Tory optimism right now. So let's do three of you, because I want to get to the future, not the past. Three of you, tell me why you think Labour's going to win. Uh, Ellis Holt, University of York Conservatives. Uh, yes, uh, I really, well, I'm, I'm an avid campaigner on the doorsteps of, uh, across York. And it's a seat that I think is going to be uh, very much, I think it's going to turn into a marginal 
for obviously its own purposes, as well, uh, its own reasons, as well as uh, just the national picture in itself. Is, is it a conservative seat now? Sorry. Uh, yes, yeah, so York Outer is a conservative seat. York Central is, uh, I think, gonna, is going to remain yeah. Labour. And uh, what's interesting, the one thing I when I knock on the door and I see a young uh, family is something I automatically assume they're going to probably vote something other than the Conservative. And it really stems from the, the house-building issue that we have in this country, that we haven't really built enough houses and we haven't provided for the younger generation. We haven't given them an, an incentive to actually vote for con- the Conservatives because we, unfortunately, occupied uh, a lot of this party is occupied by NIMBYs. And I understand that you wa- we want to protect our wildlife. Mean, I want to get the whole yes. audience involved. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I understand we want to protect wildlife but we are not providing the younger generation a good enough incentive to vote Conservative, which is why I think we're going to lose. So you all know that the average age of a Labour voter is 42 years old. The average age of a Conservative voter, deceased. (laughs) (laughs) Who in this room is under 25? This is a spectator event. I know, this is amazing. So when this is all done, unless you're going to an immediate panel right when we're finished, for you, the younger ones here, I want to talk to you for a few minutes. Off microphone, off camera, off everything. Another person who thinks Labour's going to win. Hi, um, Gavin McKenzie. I uh, live in Putney at the minute, but I come from Dundee in Scotland originally. <clears throat> I think the, the problem is, um, in, in one aspect, it's, an, it's, it's the reality of time. The government, when we get to the election, will have been in power for one year longer than new Labour was in power. Um, and obviously that was a big monumental moment um, for the country and for, for the Labour Party um, and it was a big shift. I think um, Rishi Sunak's shift on net zero is more a kind of, to use a poker analogy, I think he's probably got the worst hand at the table and his options are either full or go all in and I think what he's decided to do is go all in and see what happens and it might be a success but I think the likelihood is that it will, it will um, possibly not be enough because of the fact that his predecessor has you know, fundamentally left him in a terrible financial and economic situation. I also, as a Scot, think that even if Labour do sort of underperform at the general election, they will be made up for the fact that um, the SNP are doing particularly bad in Scotland. And so if the Labour Party can gain 25 or 30 or 35 seats from the SNP, they could feasibly underperform and they would still beat the Conservatives. So the reality of time, but also I think the fact that Rishi Sunak has been left a, a terrible mess by some of the Conservative uh, leaders that have come before him and he's been put in a very unfortunate position. But you think his net zero manoeuvre has made a Labour victory more likely rather than less likely? No, I think no, it's no. a good move. Right. I think it's a fundamentally good move from him, but it's too late. It the right. fact is that yeah. Liz Truss has ruined what for many people was the financial accountability, the kind of prudent yeah. conservatism. You know, Cameron for six years, his entire focus was get austerity down and get the finances of the country right. And unfortunately, Liz Truss has trashed that. So we're now in a bad situation. And Rishi Sunak's a fantastic Prime Minister, in my opinion, but he's been dealt with a terrible hand. Okay, fine. So that was a interesting point of feedback. Now, we're going to come back to you, Frank, I think, on the question of who, after Rishi, if Rishi somehow doesn't um, secure that fifth term for the Tory party. Um, Kate, I suppose uh, we're speaking on a day where we have had, uh, you know, 
probably quite a muted day on Sunday. I think Monday last year, I think it was Collective Responsibility Failure Day, where various <laughs> members of the cabinet went out and contradicted Liz Truss on benefits. Today, it seems to be who can steal Rishi's show, mm. and particularly Jeremy Hunt's thunder. And it does feel to me as though Liz Truss has had some success here. Now, of course... This is a packed fringe room. Um, I'm not sure we had the same level or length of queue even uh, than Liz Trust for the growth rally. Um, so how much can we really read from, you know, oh, activists are really excited to see Liz Trust, which I think clearly is becoming the story of the afternoon. Hmm. Well, look, if, you, if she is going to get that cue, this is where she's going to get it. Uh, it's quite clear, given the way that the leadership contest went last summer, that <coughs> the vast majority... Of, of, of Tory uh, grassroots did want Liz Truss to be in office. And I think it's interesting that she's obviously still commanding turnout and commanding attention uh, with some of those growth ideas. I have to say, the gentleman who just spoke summed it up better than I'm going to. Um, there, my, my deep frustration continues to be the total lack of accountability for what happened in those 49 days last year. I mean, as you said at the start, Katie, this conference was on fire um, and the party was on fire, but also the country was a little bit on fire. Uh, you know, the expectations around people's mortgages were skyrocketing. Um, you know, I think Fraser is actually the person who coined the term uh, more on premium. Uh, you know, borrowing costs were going up worldwide, but the UK was looking particularly ugly, and that was all because of political decisions that were being made. It is remarkable that a year on, um, a growth rally is taking place, overlapping with the Chancellor's speech. The Chancellor, she appointed, by the way, to undo her entire mini-budget. And yet we don't, certain groups don't talk about this. You know, it's, it's almost as if it didn't happen. It's almost as if the Liz Truss premiership didn't happen and she's back out there talking like she used to in 2018, 2019, when she was chief sec to the Treasury, talking about, you know, how we, we need to be more responsible and how we needed to go for growth, as if... She hasn't played such a large part in where we're at today. Um, and, you know, I, I think um, to Fraser's point about what arguments are actually going to work, I agree. I'm, this idea that the Labour Party is scary right now is just, it's just not going to work. Um, it's many things, but especially compared to Jeremy Corbyn, it's by no means... Um, anywhere near as worrying to your average voters it used to be. But what works really well for Labour commentary about Liz Truss. Every time something gets tricky for them, every time a difficult question is asked of the Labour Party, and there are a lot of tough questions to ask, uh, they don't talk about this government, they don't talk about Rishi Sunak, they go back to last year. And that's going to be hard, because by the time the next election rolls around, whether it's next spring or next autumn, um, that's still very much in, in the forefront of our minds. Like, we all remember it. It wasn't that long ago. We'll remember it next year, too. And, uh, you know, I think it has really gifted the Labour Party a wonderful talking point, even if it doesn't apply to the current lot. Yeah, and you can see that from the graphics that they're putting out when Keir Starmer doesn't want to make a decision. For yeah. example, on net zero, ticking quite... I mean, a few hours, I suppose, to get to the, what the position cars would be. But in the immediate time, as they debated what to do, the graphic we got was ultimately, you know, Liz Truss, was it Rishi in Liz Truss's pocket? And that was where they were most comfortable attacking. I suppose, Fraser, listening to what Kate just said, thinking about what came before Liz Truss, which was Partygate, scandal under Boris Johnson, is it really surprising the Tories are where they are in the polls? I mean, what could Rishi really have done differently? Well, the funny thing is that when, um, when they decided to do the mass resignation from Boris Johnson's cabinet, I spoke to quite a few of those resigned at the time. And there was a common theme that they said off the record, but not on the record. Off the record, they were saying, look, 
we're, um, we're 10 points behind in the opinion polls now. That's because Boris has become a lightning conductor. Uh, now, if you were to get rid of Boris and replace him with anybody else, that 10-point lead deficit w w would improve. Now, it wasn't so long before they would have killed for a 10-point deficit. There was an opinion poll yesterday showing a 10-point deficit, probably a glitch, because it's the best news Tories have had for a long, long time. Because they went off to under list trust, I think it was almost 30 points behind. Then I think with Sunak, it has been pretty much 20, 20, 15, 20 points behind for most of this year. Um, so the, the rationale for deposing Boris to improve the opinion poll rating has been, um, has, has been a failure. And I think the problem, really, is going, when you think of all the various faces that Conservatives have had in the last three or four years, I don't envy those of you knocking on doors in Yorkshire or wherever else saying, please vote Conservative, because we're the party of, what, stability after the last few years? Because the party was going to lower your taxes? Well, after pushing them up to the highest level in post-war history? Uh, because we're, you sort of slightly run out of reasons. Uh, for the Conservatives, you might say Rishi, but ultimately, they're not going to be voting for Rishi in that ballot box. They're going to be voting for the word conservative next to a local candidate. Now, how much trust does the word conservative instill in your average voter after the debacle of the last three to four years? So I think that is going to be a... Uh, so I don't, to be honest, I, 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 didn't, I thought the opinion poll... It could well be that, that Rishi's net zero gamble, as it were, might lead to an opinion poll spike. I can certainly, for the first time in a long time, I can see a path to victory for him. I still reckon there's about a 20-30% chance of that victory, but I still think it's, it's plausible. A lot of things we need to go right for the Conservatives. You need to get the Rwanda deportations going by Christmas, probably. There's a high, the Supreme Court ruling due in November. You'd have to have a lot of battles, like Net Zero, uh, um, where the Conservatives were on the right side of public opinion. They were being attacked by people who didn't have public support. The same with the Rwanda scheme. It's, uh, we're going to be, Kate and I are going to be debating that later on. Kate's um, very much opposed to it. I'm more sympathetic. But most people are in favour of the Rwanda scheme. So if that were to happen, to be attacked for reasons that put you on the same side as most of the public, that can help you. But we've seen that in various elections recently. Um, but I would I wanted to, to very quick show fans of myself, who wishes Boris Johnson was still leader? Who wishes Liz Truss was still leader? And who thinks Sunak's the best of a lot? A lot of hands didn't go up. Oh, is Sunak the best Sunak of the, the lot? Best. Yeah, Sunak. Okay, now we've got some more hands. So what do we say? I'd say about 15% were those two. I still think a lot of people didn't raise their hands. Is everyone just very disappointed? <laughs> hands up. Yeah. Don't like any of them. <laughs> Yeah, there we go. Okay, we found you. None of the above, party. Yeah. Okay, this might be a good segue then. So, Frank, I think um, just before we get, I suppose we get on to you know who else. When I think we're listening to the twenty percent in this room, and we've also do some audience questions, um, who are saying actually there is a way for the Tories. I suppose the number I always think about is one hundred and twenty-three, which is the number of seats Labour need to win to have a majority of one. And of course, on current polling, you can see how you would reach that. But you know. In a campaign, things can tighten. And it does just show you how far they have to go to get the big majorities we're currently talking about. You have also previously spoken about the level at which MPs should be worried about their seat. I think you freaked quite a lot out last year when you said 15%, 15,000. If you have a majority below 15,000, worry. That's quite a lot. <laughs> Where do you stand now, I suppose? And do you think the 123 gives people any hope in the sense they have so far to go? And two, what, would, what kind of majority should an MP currently feel more relaxed about? 
I think 15,000 15, was said to the 1922 group, having no idea that if you speak to them, you're speaking straight to the Daily Telegraph. <laughs> can, any, can anyone in this country just shut up? Can, can, I, I want Very to, high extent of journalism, you see. They always get me secrets out of them. Um, or, or your MPs, and the, their quality as well. And, <laughs> and my number's actually about 8,000. And if it's under 8,000, I really believe you're in deep trouble and you're not you're more likely than not, not to be coming back. And there'll be some people with bigger majorities that will fall. First, why are MPs not in their constituencies every single weekend, not doing surgeries, not doing these one or two off meetings, but doing these town halls where you put people like this in a room and they yell at you because you deserve to be yelled at. And they get it out of their system so they can talk to you rationally from that point on, number one. Number two, I look at the brochures that they put out. I can't follow them. And I have a PhD from Oxford. It is, it is so ridiculous. Number three, the visualization. Everyone is the MP smiling. Everyone the MP is the center of attention rather than the electorate themselves. And number four, I think Westminster conservatives are the problem, not the solution. And those who come from outside London and conservative and attend events like this and are still committed to saving their country, those are the people that can bring the conservatives back. You don't like the government, but you love your country and your voice should be heard. Now, when you said the 8,000 figure, do you think there's any sense, because ultimately, officially number 10 will say, the Conservative electorate is a broad coalition and we're going to aim for everyone. But then you perhaps have a conversation where they feel more in private, across government, across the party, and they say, you know, blue wall or red wall. Obviously, it's a blunt way of putting it. Um, but there is a question, which is, you know, should the Tories be refining their message? If they, if they think they're going to have losses, whatever happens at the next election, should they be zoning in on the 2019 realignment? So that was moving more towards those so-called red wall seats. Um, and therefore, I think, you know, some would argue uh, the net zero pivot is more aimed at that than the, you know, the Tory MPs being the most worried about it tend to be in the south with Lib Dems, the second largest in, the, in their seat. Um, so I wonder, do you, do you have a view on which way they should go, if they should go away at all, where they might be the safest? So, and I'm not ducking your question. If you really want me to answer it, I'll answer it after I say this to you. There's a reason why I wear these shoes, why I look like an idiot. There's a reason why this is my phone case and I'm American. There's a reason why I'm wearing this belt. You do have to continue, Frank. <laughs> I wonder what else is going on. I, I actually do own a pair, but I'm not gonna show you. There are too many of you who just ate. I can't believe what's happening in my country. I can't believe that we're heading towards nominating Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And I get accused of being a never-Trumper, and they all want to insult you. No, I don't want my children talking the way that he talks to women. I don't want the next generation behaving the way that he behaves. I think it's ugly. I think it's divisive. I don't think it helps anybody. There's a whole ton of stuff that Donald Trump did that I love. But as a human being, he's the worst. And what I saw for the first time in this country was the same kind of town halls that we have in America, where people show up just to yell, 
They show up not to make a difference, but to make a statement. And they won't stop even after the statement is made. And then they bring their friends to, from another part of the room to yell as well. I love this. I hated this country when I was here in the 1980s. I went to Oxford and they treated me like shit and I really hated the experience, hated everything about it. I so believe in the special relationship. I so believe that the people in this room were blessed to be from this country. I believe in a great, great Britain, in a great United Kingdom. And I'm just afraid that everything comes, and I said this on the BBC just now, that everything comes down to who's gonna win and who's gonna lose, what seats are going in what direction. We have a commitment, I'm old now. I look at all you people who are young enough to be my children. We have a commitment to you all not to wreck your country. We have a commitment to you all to do the best we possibly can. You guys are brilliant. I don't belong here, only that, I'm a pollster, I'll tell an occasional joke. By the way, I was at Donald Trump's last public event, December 23rd, 2020, it was the White House Christmas party. After a couple hours, I finally got the guts to go up and ask him, what does the J and Donald J Trump stand for? You know what he told me? Genius. <laughs> That's why I sit in this chair. But I wanna to say to you all, when you walk out of here, it's not about the right words or the phrases or even the right issues about the election. It's about the country and the next generation. And don't forget that and behave the way you want the next generation to behave. Tell the truth because the truth matters. We've lost that in America right now. And most importantly, know the good that you have done to hell with these woke warriors, to hell with those who criticize you for imperialism or or colonialism, we got our history from you. We are you, you've been a great country for hundreds of years. Don't forget that, no matter how much labor shits on you and the Lib Dems refuse to respect you and hold yourself the way that you want others to do so because the world is watching and this democracy is worth saving. So. And on that, we're going to now take some questions. Okay, so I, have you got I, the... Can I do my thing? Oh, yeah, do, the Rishi thing. thing. Yes. Okay, we're going to work out who the next Tory leader is, and then we're going to take the questions. Right, so let's it won't take long. Imagine Rishi Sunak <laughs> got offered it. Okay, so first thing we're going to do is I want you to shout out the person you want to lead the Conservative Party in 2026 by cheering. Who wants Kemi? Who wants Penny? Yay! Who wants Grant? <laughs> We won't tell him. Okay. <laughs> Looks like I'm not going to be invited over for Christmas. Who wants Suella? Hey! She's out too. Who wants Tom? Hey! He's out. Who wants uh, Cleverly? Hey! He's out. Who wants Frost? Hey! Who wants Rishi to stay? Hey! Okay. I think it's Kemi, Penny, and Rishi. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So Done. now we have the, the runoff. <laughs> Are you ready? Who wants Rishi to stay of those three? Yes. Who wants Penny? Yes. Who wants Kemi? Yes. Okay, you know who your next prime minister is. Done. 
Well, okay, so... Well, everyone can go home now. <laughs> We're going to take some questions. Now, have we got microphones? You're no pressure now. If you're going to... Very gonna... sweet, Katie, very sweet. Andrew, Andrew <laughs> Edwards. I'm a February 1974 kind of man where Ted Heath got 297 seats and Harold Wilson got 301. Ted Heath didn't resign straight away. My point is that Rishi could still come second and not resign because Ted Heath talked to Jeremy Thorpe to see whether or not they'd talk over the weekend. What's your thinking on the, actually that either side may become the largest single party and continue to govern? Sure, so what happens in a narrow result? And if Tories wants... OK, let's take a um, question from the man... He's not on, quite on the edge, so we're still passing Frank's rule. Uh, Chandela, my question is um, the propensity for Keir Starmer to blow it up himself. Interesting. Great question. Um, let's start with those two, and then we'll get some more. So, Fraser, what happens in a, say, you know, Starmer's largest pa- party and the Tories yeah. are behind on four seats? It's, it's technically possible in our system, and, but, but, but yeah. Labour gets more votes but uh, the Sunak, by some alchemy, can still be Prime Minister. It is possible, in my view, morally indefensible, and he should go in those circumstances. I'd say the same of the Labour system. You ever looked for a while that Gordon Brown was going to hang on after the 2010 election? And then I thought, no, this is just not right. You got, you, you got fewer votes. I'd apply the same rules to Sunak. And by the way, I think he'd say the same himself. So it's technically possible, but I think... If, if, if Labour wins the most votes, then I think the Conservatives would struggle to gain legitimacy for, for a fifth term, really. And, Frank, do you want to take that one about, uh, you know, what's the chance of Keir Starmer blowing himself up? Because we're talking a lot about what the Tories can and should do. But, of course, if you heard about the flip-flop comment earlier, you know... But, yeah, Starmer seems very risk-averse and cautious right now, probably for that reason. I don't think he's going to blow himself up. I'm hoping that you have leadership debates. I think the people who support him may blow up the Labour Party themselves. He is cha- he's different than his predecessor, and so are the people closest to him. But go one circle away, and there are still a lot of Corbyn people around him. Give them the microphone, and they'll blow up the Labour Party. And by the way, the Conservatives should never have to depend on a Liberal leader who killed somebody, or at least tried to, to get into office. Boy, that joke did not go down well. What about the dog, though? Yeah. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> okay, more questions, Hans. Okay, great. I'm going to... Okay, there's uh, the person with the hand up there. Hello. Yeah. Um, I'm Bethan Davis. I am Virginia Crosby, or I work for Virginia Crosby, the MP for Ernest Morn. Um, and I'm really interested in why the Conservatives aren't making more of the complete hash that Labour is making in Wales. Because I think, you know, the answer to why don't we build houses in England is look over the border and see how many are being built in Wales because it is so much worse over there. Okay, so Labour Wales and particularly on housing. And then let's get the other question. And Ian White, I'm a Conservative councillor in Edinburgh. And so it's back to that Scotland thing. Will Scotland make a difference if the SNP do very badly? Labour win a lot of seats and even maybe Conservatives increase slightly in Scotland. Great. So, Kate, when I come to you in Wales, before we do, let's just get Fraser on Scotland. Because, of course, if they can unlock... You can have that Scottish Labour resurgence. And we have the Rutherglen by-election coming Thursday. this Thursday. Um, I think it's one of those ones that Scottish Labour 
really does need to take it to really, like, if, if the polls are correct, they're on course for a real resurgence, you'd expect them to take a by-election from a former SNP who broke COVID rules and so forth. But what do you think? I badly want Labour to win this by-election on Thursday. Um, I, I'm one of these, I will admit to you guys, that I would rather live an eternity in Labour and Britain than a single day in a fractured disunited kingdom. I'm a unionist, this matters a lot to me. And the thing is that the SNP has come into scrutiny, um, it's been really exposed, the police have yet to decide what they're going to do with Nicola Sturgeon. If the SNP, though, I, I, I'm looking forward to the consequence um, collapse of the SNP vote and getting away from the danger zone of losing a, a refer another referendum. I think that's quite achievable, but for that, you would need the SNP membership, really, to sort of the ones who've been won over by the sort of fairy tales Nicholas Durgeon told them, to become disillusioned and then go back to the status quo ante. So I would, um, broadly speaking, I think Labour are going to pick up about 20 seats in Scotland, as a gentleman was saying earlier on there. That is um, significant, um, and I think Tories might pick up five or six broadly speaking. But most of all, I would like the SNP to be like the separatists in Quebec, you know? So people who basically had their second chance and blew it and aren't, and are, are never get a proper stab in it again. I think we came incredibly close last time. Far too, I never thought I would see 45% of, of my countrymen vote to, to separate the UK, to break it up. And I still don't think that threat has gone away. So I would like to think that Labour will do strongly in Scotland. And that makes things more difficult for the Tories and so be it. Great. And Kate, on that Wales point, uh, which is effectively, you know, you see the Tories centre trying to push it, um, but yeah, it doesn't quite seem to take off. No, and they do try to push it. Certainly on the National Health Service, they point to the Welsh waiting list. They try to push it on education. But I think the simple answer is that after 13 years, you can't finger point at a smaller government. It just doesn't work. And I don't think it really resonates um, because I, I think you make a good point. And a lot of these issues are bigger than the Tory party. They're issues that have been affecting the UK probably for you know decades before this particular lot even came to power, but they have been in power for over a decade. And it just, it just doesn't sit right with people to say, well, look over there. When, you're, when you've asked for power, and you've been in power. Um, and you know, I, I think about the parents who were called a few weeks ago to be told that their primary school child had to be sent home or couldn't go to school because their school was caving in. You know, Every single one of those children will have been born under some kind of conservative-led government. So the fact that those issues are you know, 25, 30 years old doesn't negate the fact that they feel like this lot should be accountable for what's happening now. So I just don't think it, it works to point and say, you know, look over there. Right. Have we got one final round of questions? I want to talk about the Southwest um, quite often. And even in, although I'm an avid listener of the podcast, we don't hear the Southwest even in your discussions very much. And of course, in the Southwest, Labour isn't as big an issue. It's the Liberal Democrats. Now, knocking on the doors as I do in Devon, it's actually more of a problem of apathy more than anything. And, you know, the, the Liberal Democrats have done well in recent by-elections, more in the case that our lot didn't turn out. Just like to be just interested to hear what your views are on the Liberal Democrats in the Southwest, but also voter apathy kind of as a wider point. Okay, so voter apathy, Southwest on the front of the Lib Dems, and then we've got this lady in the front. Thank you. Um, my name's Ecto, I'm a councillor from Uxbridge in London. Um, as many of you know, the only parliamentary by-election win 
in the last 18 months or so. Um, my question is actually about the mayoralty. I know there's been a lot of discussion about the um, about the general election, quite rightly yeah. so, but we have a lot of mayoral elections coming up next year as well in large places. Um, it's a question for Frank, actually. Would you be okay to comment on, on the mayoralty in London and elsewhere as well? So, so how that is looking? Yeah, yeah it's obviously Susan Hall. And quite quite tough polling for Sadiq Khan at the moment, yeah. given it's now first past the it was post. three points system. ahead of the last poll, wasn't it? Um, yeah, let's get our third question. Oh, hi, I'm Melanie Whitehead from Surrey. Following up on the gentleman's comment about Lib Dems, okay. I was a councillor for 16 years till May, and I lost my seat to Lib Dems, spit gob, spit gob. And that's what worries me in Surrey. They're making great inroads, the Lib Dems. So when we focused on, on Labour, I think we need to have a little eye on what's happening from the Lib Dem angle because they seem to be capitalising on the weaknesses in the Conservative. And I think this um, Green Zero net target is going to play into the hands of the Lib Dems because those are very hot on that. But secondly, going back to the, um, your, your kind of expertise, sir, on, on um, the American presidential elections, can we do a John Kerry on Keir Starmer? Because my understanding is historically that John Kerry was doing amazingly well on his vet. I was a vet and stuff like that. But actually, when they started to unpick it all, they found there was huge holes in his story and that done for him. And I wonder if we could do the same with Keir Starmer. Okay, great. Three great questions. Um, and I was in Bournemouth last week for one night only at the Lib Dem conference. Um, and they did seem quite chipper. They also had their glee club. You haven't got that here yet. Yeah, it's, whereas a lot of um, middle-aged men um, stay up to 2am singing almost hymns they've rewritten the lyrics to. So they're about Liz Truss. Anyway, it was one in, one out by the time I got there, so it was very popular. Um, now, now, we'll just go to those final questions. I suppose, Frank, maybe let's just start with you. Two direct questions, one being about what you think might happen in the, the Labour mayoral race. Could there be a bit of an upset for Sadiq Khan? And then, of course, also the John Kerry point. Yeah, his is the question I want to answer. Okay, well, you can answer all three. Go for um, it. Uh, I do believe the Conservatives are not spending enough time because the place where they are going to stay home is going to be in the Southwest because they cannot vote against the blue. But they're so mad at this point that they can't take the time to go out and vote. So for you, it's simply, for you, it's a negative campaign. Okay, you may not like us, but you sure as hell are not going to like them. I don't believe in this in the North, and I don't like to recommend negative campaigns because that just makes us more angry, more divisive, and I, it's just not appropriate. It's one of the reasons why I quit electoral politics. But if I'm, if I'm responsible for your area, I'm absolutely reminding them of who, if you don't vote for us, labor gets in. And here are the consequences. As far as John Kerry, Starmer just seems like a decent guy. Nobody likes lawyers, barristers, <laughs> whatever you call it. There's always that joke about if a bus full of a lawyer's goes off a cliff, and it doesn't matter what the ending is. It's just a good ending. <laughs> but he seems innocuous, and I would not know at this point how to get at him. That's why I'm looking at all the people around him, because they're the weak ones. And as far as London, I'm the only person who thought that Sean Bailey, I thought he was amazing. And I got to know him, and he's the real deal. And imagine what that would have done to the conservative image and to the image of London if he had been elected. Your mayor in London is truly despised. But the problem is they don't like the conservative alternative. Not the candidate, but just the party. So I don't know how you overcome that. 
but I know that it's worth it to try because he is going, he is the epitome of what Labour will do in office if they get the chance. Um, Fraser, do you want to pick up any of those points for end? I mean, do you think Suzanne's Hall's in a good chance? Because it's first past the post now, it benefits the Tories if they can. Yeah. I'll also like to pick up on Frank's words. Sadiq Khan is truly despised. Now, those... Uh, I, by the way, it, it's funny because he is... You know, you can't move in London for seeing his picture everywhere. He was at Sadiq Khan has given free ch- meals to children. You think, God, how could he do that from his personal salary, you know? All of these little Sadiq Khan propaganda everywhere. It drives you mad. I do think his Ule, the Ule's thing and his doubling down on it is really going to hurt him because it's not about... you. Having, it's just basically insulting your intelligence. The air in London is purer than at any time in living memory. Um, There's studies showing it's like it was five times more dirty in, in the year 1700 than it is now. So if people feel that they're being lied to in order to be taxed, that just, they're being taken for fools, that gets the goat up. And I think Sadiq Khan, in doubling down on Ulez, he's doubling down on the insulting intelligence of the city. And I think that, and that I'm starting to see in Susan Hill, again, somebody you might not rate her very much, but it's hard to dislike her, hard to despise her. She seems quite a feisty, sort of likable kind of character. Um, and I'm beginning to think now that she might, this might be the big surprise of next year. Sadiq Khan loses, Susan Hill wins, and Sadiq Khan would be losing because of his, his arrogance in pursuing a fundamentally dishonest agenda on you, Liz. Okay. Um, um, I'll end on a, a US perspective because we had a, a question about John Kerry and the question about voter apathy. I wouldn't, I wouldn't um, get too much hope out of the John Kerry situation. Very different. It, it's very difficult to, um, to win against a sitting president. And let's not forget that at the time in 2004, there was still huge support, broad support in America for the war that George Bush was waging, George W. Bush. And, and people felt like things were in control. And W was still relatively new, and you know, it, it, I think it was a very, a very different set of circumstances. Um, but just to end on that point about voter apathy, um, Frank summed up all the reasons why I am deeply apathetic when it comes to my home country's election. I cannot believe that in a country of 330 million people, we are going to be asked to vote for Donald Trump or Joe Biden again. It is, it is. It is offensive, I think, to the American people that these are the options we are likely to be given. It's not a foregone conclusion, but I'm not going to have rose-tinted glasses on this. The people I like in the Republican primary are probably not going to get anywhere near the actual nomination. Um, And it makes me deeply apathetic. And I look at the UK and all of its problems, and I'm so grateful to live here. I love living here. And I think, gosh, there's a lot to do, but it's not nearly as bad as the US. It's, It's just not. That will be true if Labour wins. It will be true if the Tories win. It's not as bad. There's far more opportunity for change here, um, for finding areas of agreement, for having civil, if not very robust, debate. So please don't be apathetic. Be apathetic when they present you with Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Do not be apathetic in what is likely to be the election next year. And Frank, can I ask, do you think it's going to be Trump versus Biden? Is that your gut feeling? Unfortunately, yes. And I can't call it. Joe Biden is so old, it takes him an hour and a half to watch 60 Minutes. <laughs> He's so old, his favorite painting is The Last Supper. He's the second waiter from the left. Right. And, 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 the, and the, case is, the best person you guys can get to challenge him is Trump. Then can we conclude that the experiment of American self government has uh, failed? <laughs> and on that note. Yeah. <laughs> and on that. 
Thank you, Fraser. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, Frank. And thank you for listening. <laughs>